Hey folks, it's Casual Sunday here at Coast. We're, uh, we're happy to do it. We don't do that very often here, so I, I like preaching in a short sleeve shirt. I, I told someone one day that I would never preach in jeans, and so far I've never preached in jeans. Now these are close, but they're kind of like corduroy. Do, do I get away with it still, right? Okay, alright, alright. Well, hey, if you get a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9. Before we get out to that water slide, we're going to be in the Word of God here. we got a good message today in the Gospel of Luke. So open up your Bible to Luke chapter 9, and we'll begin reading from verse 1 today. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we uh, commit now this time to you. We're glad to be together as a church family, and we're glad to... Um, Join together after this service for a great time of fellowship and fun. Uh, but even now, Lord, we want to uh, first hear from you. We want to open up your word and learn what it is you have to teach us today. And Father, uh, we know that every time we open up your word, you speak to us in ways that we often would not expect. So let us now open uh, up this time with humble and expectant hearts looking for what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 through 6. Luke 9, 1 through 6. Then he, Jesus, called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for, your, for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, Depart, and whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You may be seated. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. This marks the first time that in, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus bestows the ability to heal upon his disciples. The first time in the Gospel of Luke in which he bestows upon them the miraculous healing power of God. The first time they get to do what Jesus can do. The first time they're endowed with power from on high. And it's fascinating, really, when you think about when Jesus decided to entrust them with this power. Jesus decides to grant the disciples this healing power just a short while after his own power was mocked and ridiculed. 
Pastor Tom uh, spoke last week, uh, and he covered a, a chunk of the latter part of Luke 8. And in a portion of his uh, great message in the Gospel of Luke, he covered the, the, the portion about uh, Jairus' daughter, who had seemingly died. And uh, the, 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 a representative from Jairus' home had come uh, to see Jairus and had told him, I'm sorry, it's too late, your daughter has died. The crowd informs the father that his daughter is dead. And yet no sooner do those words hit Jairus' ears that Jesus looks at him and says, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. That's in verse 50 of Luke 8. So together they, go, they went to the house, as you learned last week, and, and Jairus sees his daughter lying there, seemingly dead, And as the tears well up within him, Jesus says again, this time in verse 52, Do not weep, she's not dead, but she's sleeping. Well, when the crowd heard this comment by Jesus, Luke says in verse 53 of chapter 8, that the crowd ridiculed Jesus. They ridiculed him. They derided him. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They scorned him for being so foolish and the disciples of Jesus they were all witnesses of this they saw what Jesus said they saw the crowds reaction they were watching what was taking place in and amidst that environment the disciples saw what the crowd did to Jesus they saw how the crowd responded to his claim of authority and to the power that was inherent within him to do what he was about to do. And I suggest to you that it isn't happenstance that this, this was the moment that Jesus would later decide to give his disciples that same power and authority. Jesus was waiting, folks. He was waiting for the perfect time to give power and authority to his apostles. He could have given it to them at any time, but he waited and waited and waited. And he chose to give it not long after the disciples had witnessed Jesus' authority being mocked, laughed at, and scorned. Jesus waited because he wanted them to see And to know without a doubt that just because they have some gift or hold some office or are given some position of authority, that just because they they have this gift or or office or responsibility, that that, that, that that doesn't mean that they can wield it around and expect everyone to follow. Jesus wanted his disciples to see that even he, having been given all power and all authority, that even his power could be and would be often challenged. He wanted the disciples to know that they would face trials and hardships, and even when they had been given gifts and power from on high, not all would listen, not all would follow. And that brings us to an important point on your outline, right in the middle of the front page there of your outline. The Lord gives gifts, 
responsibility, power, and authority to those who are mature enough to handle it. The Lord gives gifts and responsibility, power, and authority to those who are mature enough to handle it. That should have been on the same line there. Sorry about that. The disciples weren't ready for that power and that authority until they saw that same power and authority fail right in front of their eyes. Oh, it didn't fail because Jesus didn't heal Jairus' daughter. He did. He raised her up, seemingly from the dead. Jesus' power and authority worked that day. But leading up to it, the crowd looked upon that power and that authority and that claim, and they all said uniformly, what a fool. Don't follow him. Don't listen to this. The Lord waited to give power and responsibility and authority for the perfect moment in which he could show his disciples that it would not always be adhered to. You know, there are some who, there are some people who desperately, desperately, desperately seek authority. Some people desperately want to hold a, a, an office of some kind, a title, a position of some kind. They desperately seek it. And they do so supposing that just the mere holding of that office will garner them the respect that they desire. When in reality, the scriptures make clear that those endowed with authority are often the ones that are most challenged, most tested, most questioned, and most opposed. If you want responsibility from God, if you desire to serve Him in a certain capacity, or, or you think that you ought to, to hold a certain office in the church, Jesus' message for you is very plain this morning. It is, count the cost. Prepare yourself. Don't crave power for power's sake. Know that with great power comes great responsibility. As the saying goes. And that all those having power often endure a great deal of opposition and even ridicule. That's probably why Paul spent so much time in the New Testament telling people to pray for kings and governors and all those in authority. He said we should pray for them. Why? They're in positions of power. And as someone in a position of power, Paul knew quite well, as did his Lord before him, that those in power often get mocked and ridiculed and scorned and derided, opposed the most. Pray for them, Paul says. And that's why Paul asked prayer for him in his ministry. Countless times you read Paul writing over and over again, pray for me, pray for me, pray for us, pray for us. Why? Because he was in a position of authority, in leadership, with responsibility, great power. But he knew how much that power could be opposed. And so he was asking for the prayers of the saints for him to be a good and wise leader. To use, <coughs> excuse me, to use his power in a way that would bless the people, bring them along with him. Are you ready to receive the power of God? Are you ready to receive power from God? 
Are you ready to be endowed with a new responsibility to lead or to serve in the church? To be given maybe even a new spiritual gift to serve in the church? The Lord is looking to see who is mature, who is wise, wise enough to be entrusted with such things. And Jesus waited all the way, all the way until Luke 9 to give his disciples this power. Maybe he's waiting to give you some office, some power, some authority. He's waiting for your maturity to rise up just a bit more so that he can entrust you with it. Well, what exact power did Jesus give these 12 men? Take a look again at verse 1. He gave them power over the demons, right? Verse 1, he called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons. That is to, to exercise, exercise demons, to cast them out. And he also gave them power to cure diseases, the power to heal and make well. Wonderful, miraculous power, no doubt. Power that we would look at today and just be, be uh, dumbfounded by. We're present right in front of us. But it's also interesting to note that the miraculous powers that Jesus gave to his disciples were not the only focus. And how often is it that power is the only focus in our minds? Oh, if I just get that office, if I just get that title, if I just get that power. Jesus says power is not everything. Power was part of it. But Jesus was also deeply concerned with something else, and it's mentioned in verse 2. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. To preach the kingdom of God, Luke emphasizes, and to heal the sick. Without the word, the power endowed to the disciples would be meaningless. We can cast out demons. We can pray for healing. We can supply food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, medicine to the sick. We can do all these things, show great benevolence to the poor and the hurting. And we should, and we do. But at the end of the day, if we have the capacity, the power, to help meet the needs of the world and those in our community... If we have that capacity and that power to help the world and the community around us and we don't couple it with the message of the kingdom of God, then what are we really doing anyway? Luke makes a point here in verse 2. He says, yes, go out, disciples. He, he's, he's quoting Jesus here saying, yes, disciples, go out. And cast out demons. Go out and heal the sick. But as you go, preach and teach the kingdom of God. God has given us the power and capacity to do good. But if all of our good deeds are not coupled with the good news of the kingdom of God, then what have we really done? That should be, by the way, one of the greatest tests that you and I should use when evaluating the effectiveness of a humanitarian effort or an organization that specializes in humanitarian missions 
We should ask ourselves, of course we should ask ourselves, will this organization meet real needs like feeding the hungry and clothing the naked? Will it meet real needs, physical needs, earthly needs? Will this organization accomplish this humanitarian need and will they do it well? That's a great question to ask. But we should also ask a second question when evaluating humanitarian efforts and organizations. And that second question is far often is far too often not asked among Christians. And that second question is this, will they also preach the gospel? Will they also preach the gospel? And if the answer is no, then I suggest to you that that is not the wisest organization to partner with. Earthly bread is good and will sustain physical life. But ultimately the bread of life is the only food that is essential to our eternal well-being. Amen? It has to be there. It has to be there. We can go out and take all the food we want to feed the hungry. We can go out and bring all the medicine we want to help those who are sick. But if we're not bringing with it the Word of God and the preaching of the Gospel and the Kingdom of God, then what are we doing? Why are we bothering? You're sustaining them for a moment. This sustains them for eternity. It is good to sustain them for the moment. We do that as a church. We like to go to Haiti and meet humanitarian needs. So much of our trip is spent with food and medicine and clothes and the basic things of life, and that is good. But you know why else we go? And more importantly, why we go? Because we bring with us the Word of God and the message of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Jesus gave His disciples phenomenal power to do miraculous things that would bless people. But that power was not sufficient for all things. The word, the message of the kingdom would also be necessary. And so he sent them out not just to heal the sick, but to preach the kingdom of God. Now before they left, with their newfound power, Jesus gave them a few more instructions. Take a look at verse 3. And Jesus said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bread, uh, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, he writes in verse 4, he says in verse 4, stay there, and from there, depart. You know, many people assume that with power comes uh, prominence, right? With power comes a prominent lifestyle. But here's Jesus giving power from on high to the disciples, and with it, he sends them out in humility and meekness. They're sent out humbly, utterly reliant on Him for all things. Jesus says, don't bring anything with you. Take nothing for the journey. Neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even two tunics. Interestingly enough, these are the same instructions, similar instructions, that I give to my wife every time we travel particularly the no bag or bags or how many bags was in our car for the camping trip honey 100 
two or three hundred? Folks, when we went camping, there, I brought so many bags to the van, I, it was unbelievable that I fit all of these bags. Now, my wife, I love you, honey, but every once in a while she overpacks just a tad, not a lot, just a tad, and I'm just stuffing this these, this camping gear in the van, you know, this couple months ago when we went camping, just stuffing it, stuffing it, stuffing it, and I'm, I've got the automatic door, right? So every time you click the door, you know, you push, you pull the door toward you, it starts to close, but what happens when something's in the way? It goes right back, so I click it, push, 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 click it, I, I must have done that 10 times until we got it closed. And then the trunk, don't even think about the trunk. I mean, I actually had to load the trunk from inside the car. You know why? Because, first of all, I couldn't close it when I was done with it. So I had to load it. I had to go over the seats to load the trunk. And then don't even think about opening the trunk, you know, when you get to the campsite. You've got to unload it from within the car or else it would all fall on you. Honey, Jesus' instructions are clear. No bag for the journey. But back to reality for a minute. Don't lose sight of what Jesus says here. Don't lose sight of it. This is significant. He says, take nothing for the journey. No bag, no bread, no money, not even two tunics. When was the last time you traveled with no bag? When was the last time you traveled with no money? You say, well, I don't carry cash. No credit cards. No debit card. No cash. No checks. You got in the car and you drove to your campsite with nothing in your wallet. When was the last time you traveled with no extra clothes? As the disciples only traveled with the clothes on their back. Never, right? Never. We would never travel this way, ever. Yet this is how Jesus sends them out. Why? Because he wanted his disciples in the midst of power from Almighty God, endowed with power, he wanted his disciples to maintain in their power an utter sense of dependence upon God. And not just the Lord, but Jesus gave them another instruction, another group of people upon whom they were to be dependent. Verse 4, Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. The powerful disciples were to reside among the people they went to serve. They weren't to be above the people. They were to be with the people. They had responsibility. They had a responsibility to be with the people. And the people had a responsibility to receive them. The reception of the people mattered. Their participation mattered. This wasn't just the disciples' powerful circus show. It wasn't uh, the, the disciples' power from on high show that's coming to town and everybody watch us up on stage. No. It was a cooperative effort 
divinely empowered leaders with gracious and godly hosts and helpers. Both would be needed to do the work of God in the city. In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 10, 11, he says, inquire who in the city is worthy and stay there. Find who is worthy, Jesus says. And by worthy, he means righteous, yes, but more to the point, he means hospitable, gracious, willing to open their door. Inquire who in the city is worthy and stay there. Are you worthy? Are you hospitable and gracious and willing? Can the church call upon you to serve, to open up your home, to receive missionaries, or to aid the sick, or to help those who are hurting? You know, we've spoken a lot in our church about expanding the guest list. And by expanding the guest list, we mean, um, as Jesus did in, uh, the, in the latter chapters of Luke, expanding the guest list means to look around at our world and take the gospel and, and, and humanitarian efforts to those we would least likely to see. Take it to the homeless. Take it to the less fortunate, the marginalized. Take it to uh, the, the, the illegal alien. Take it to those with mental illness. Take it to those who are wandering the streets, whom we would not normally speak to. We've spoken much at this church about expanding the guest list, opening up our table and saying, hey, we're going to help all and sundry. We're going to help everyone and look and particularly look for the, for the marginalized in our culture and reach out to them. But what about expanding something else? What about, and I listed it there on the back of your outline, what about expanding the host list? What about expanding the host list? Who is willing to open up a seat at their dinner table? Who is willing to open up a bed to someone in need? Who is willing to let the least of these stay in their home for a period of time until they can get back up on their feet? Hosting is a lost ministry. I believe that. I really believe that. Hosting is a lost ministry of the church, particularly in Orange County. We are failing at this ministry as a culture of Orange County Christians. Failing at it. Not even average, not even below average. We are failing at hosting. And do you know how many times hosting is mentioned in the New Testament? Dozens and dozens of times. Hosting is mentioned as one of the most, as one of the chief, chief acts of a Christian in the New Testament. And yet we never open up our home. We never invite someone over for dinner, for table fellowship. Is your home open? Open to your neighbors? Open to your church family? Is it open to the hurting and the marginalized? Would you tell me if it is? I mean that. Tell me if your home is open. Because I am often looking for homes that can 
open up the dinner table for a meal for a hurting family. I am often looking for homes. Pastor Tom and I, we encounter a lot of needs during the week. And we are often looking for homes of people who will take someone in for dinner. We're looking for homes for people who may need a bed for a little bit of time. And that's a difficult thing to ask. We're looking for short-term residence for certain individuals. Leaving your comfort zone, yes, big time. But blessing another in need. We're trying to expand the guest list. But as we do, we have to expand the host list. You can't meet the needs of the guests unless the homes are open. Is your home open? Jesus' disciples need hosting. Jesus says, you're going to go to homes. In all the towns of Israel, you're going to go to homes. And you're going to knock on the door and ask if you can be, be put up. Whatever house you enter, stay there. That is to say, whatever house receives you, whatever group of people say, yes, I want to I bless you, I want to receive you, he says, stay there and depart from there. That is to say, stay there until you leave that city. But there were some cities in which no host was found. In the cities where the doors were opened, the miraculous power of God entered and the peace of God entered. But in the cities where the doors were shut, Jesus has something else to say. Look at verse 5. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. A reluctance to host. A reluctance to receive the people and the word of God such reluctance, Jesus says, will lead to a withholding of God's blessing. Such reluctance will even lead to judgment. Whoever will not receive you, Jesus says, when you leave that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. The dust falling would have been a clear image to a person of the ancient Near East. Jesus' disciples would have instantly known what he was talking about. The dust falling was a symbol of judgment. It was a symbol of a city in ruins, buildings falling, war-torn. And when Jesus speaks of them shaking the dust, kicking the dust off their feet, the image that they saw was an image of judgment. Paul Interestingly enough, follow these exact words of Jesus in the book of Acts. It's on your outline. Flip it over there on your outline. Acts 13, 50 and 51. Paul was in Antioch with Barnabas. It says, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, and they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. They went to another city. You can see also in Acts 18.6 where Paul shakes his garment, shakes the dust off his garment as a symbol of judgment. On your outline there, we are to take the gospel, friends, 
to where it is received. Write that down. We are to take the gospel to where it is received. And where it is not, we are to move on. Say it one more time. We are to take the gospel to where it is received. And where it is not, we are to move on. The disciples were not to linger in a town that would not receive them. Jesus didn't tell them, keep banging on doors all day long in the same city. Keep going over and over and over and over and over again until you find someone who will open. No. If there was a culture within that city where the doors were closed, he said, move on. Shake the dust off your feet as a symbol of judgment upon them and move on. We are responsible. What does that tell us? It tells us that we are responsible to go with the gospel, right? We are responsible to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, but we are not responsible for how it's received. What a relief. I'm responsible, you're responsible to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, but we are not responsible for whether that door opens or is shut in our face. And if it is shut in our face, Jesus says, move on. Go to the next door. Don't linger forever. If it's not received, move on to where it will be. We plant, we water, only God makes it grow. We finish with verse 6. So they, the disciples, they departed and they went through the towns of Israel, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Off they went, having received power at just the right moment from Jesus, knowing in their hearts that the power and the message would not always be warmly received, just like Jesus was not warmly received everywhere he went. They left Jesus in a spirit of humility, reliant on God and the reception of others, and they went to those who would graciously receive them and receive their message and receive the peace of God. But to those who rejected them, the disciples moved on, shaking off the dust as a symbol of judgment. Well, does that really apply today? I mean, we're not often going house to house and knocking on doors. And, um, you know, we often think, well, that's more of a something that some of the cults do, right? You know, you, sometimes you get uh, different aberrant Christian groups who knock on doors and you open it up and you kind of know which cult they're from and it just, you, maybe you slam the door in their face. I don't know. I always say, hey, come on in, let's talk. Uh, I like talking to them. Um, but you look at this story and you go, ah, how do I, how do we make sense of this today? Well, um, I'll finish with a story. Uh, Pastor Tom and I were uh, in the office six months ago and we were, um, and I've, Ask permission to share this, by the way. So we've, we've got uh, clear sailing on this story. We, want, we wanted to make it public from the family. Um, Pastor Tom and I were in the office about six months ago, and we, uh, we just had an inkling of the Holy Spirit to just go take a walk. And we got up, started walking, and we made our way up to the first house on the corner. Many of you know that first house on the corner there. Um, uh, was, not no longer, but was, uh, the home of Perry Powell. And uh, he, for many, many years, would just walk down to the campus here and take care of the church. And we, we, we uh, made our way up to the house knowing what we were walking into because, you see, in the home at that time, Perry uh, had his son, Trevor, 
young man, about 21, 22 at the time. And uh, Trevor had, uh, has gone through a lot in his life, and that's an understatement. Um, at the time that we walked to that home, we knew what we were walking into. We knocked on the door, and he opened it up. And sure enough, we, uh, Perry was at work, and, and we were there with Trevor. And we could look inside and see uh, what was taking place in the home. Uh, Trevor was uh, addicted to drugs. He was completely high. Uh, he had been doing uh, heroin and methamphetamines. Um, and it was, as he walked out, he was, he was just gone, just completely gone. And he looked at us, and uh, Tom and I just had knocked on the door. He opened the door to us, and we came, we came with an intent to see if he would be receptive to the kingdom of God and to turning his life around. And as we spoke with him for about a half an hour uh, on the front porch there, um, again and again and again, Trevor said, no, I like my life. I like what I'm doing. You guys, uh, you can't help me. I don't need help. I'm doing just fine. And over and over again, despite our effort, uh, Trevor looked upon us and said, I don't want what you're offering to me. We offered him a, a way of escape, and he said no. Before we left, we, we took out one of the business cards of the church, and we handed it to him, and I said to him, Trevor, there will be a day where you will be ready to leave this life, and you know that you can call us at any time when that day comes. And he took the card and put it in his pocket, kind of brushed us off and went back inside to shoot up more heroin. Well, we came back to the church and just prayed and uh, meditated on scriptures like this one, reminding ourselves that all we can do is plant and water, but only God can make, cha- make life change. Well, six months passed, and uh, out of the blue, unbeknownst to us, God was doing a work in Trevor's heart as a result of that meeting and a result of the ministry of many, many others who have reached out to Trevor. And on Tuesday of this last week, Trevor gave the church office a call. And the only reason he had the number to the church office is because he had the card that we had given to him six months ago. And he called that number and he spoke with Pastor Tom and he said, I want out of this life. And we immediately got in the car, Tom and I. We drove up to uh, the apartment. The house uh, had to be sold. And we drove to the apartment where Trevor was. And uh, he was waiting for us in the garage. We said, do you, do you, what, do you, are you serious? And he said, yes. I said, he said, I looked in the mirror today and all I saw was death. I want out of this life and I want out of it right now. And we said, do you want to go back inside and get your things? And he says, if I walk back into that home... I will return to the life from which I've come. He says, I want to leave right now. So we got him in the car. We, through the work of many ministries and, and efforts uh, of, with partners that we have in, in Orange County, Christian ministries that we work with, we got him into a detox facility. He just successfully finished his detoxing yesterday. And he is now at a private Christian men's sober home and about to begin Christian counseling and therapy on Monday morning. Amen?
Why do I bring up this story? You know, is Trevor going to make it? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you that he is, because he might not. Um, is he going to make it? I don't know. But here's what I know. When I go to someone's home, and they're receptive and willing, that's where we bring the gospel of the kingdom of God. But when we go to someone's home and they shut the door, we keep moving on. And we pray, we ask God, we say, Lord, when they're ready, we just send them our way. We are ready and willing to help whenever they are ready to turn their life around and to give it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we waited for six months and Trevor came back. And it was a testimony to what, uh, what planting and watering those seeds, those little seeds that you think aren't going anywhere, a testimony to what God can do when we go house to house, when we show hospitality. Tom and I weren't taking Trevor in, but we were showing hospitality in the sense that we said, whenever you're ready, you call this number, we will come get you in a moment, in a flash. We were ready and willing to help. And God worked on that young man's heart. And today, he is in a safe place because this church has partnered and prayed and worked with many organizations who are ready and willing to help him. Amen? So let's pray for Trevor. A call for prayer for him. A call for prayer for Mignon and others who are uh, battling recovery efforts and addiction. And also a reminder here, folks, that whether you're going with, with as a leader, you know, Tom and I, we were going as leaders, or whether you're to be hosts and helpers, and opening up your homes, there's always a place of partnership for you in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this uh, time together in your word. God, we call upon you now for the life of Trevor Powell and also for Mignon Estrada and all those, Lord, who have gone through the the battles of recovery. Oh Lord, we know those fights are never over. They're always just beginning and fresh. They're an everyday battle. Yet God, uh, we as a church just want to have open arms, ready and willing to help when you want us to help. God, help us to have that mindset as we've learned from this story in the Gospels. To go, to knock on doors, to take the power and the message of the Gospel but to take it where it's received. And where it is not, Lord, we pray and we wait. And God, when those people turn around and come back, oh, thank you, God. Thank you when they turn their life around and come back. And remember, when they remember who was gracious to them, who was generous to them, who was hospitable toward them. Jesus, you have said that even a cup of cold water will not be overlooked if it is given in your name. So God, whether we, whether we're the ones going out in the power of the preaching of the gospel, or whether we're the ones opening up our homes, or opening up our dinner table to those around us, let us all know assuredly that we have a part in the growth of the kingdom of God, in changing lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.